yo, what's good, Internet? It's the Harvest of Colin Atrophy, and I'm very happy to welcome you to episode number 48 of Life Harvester Radio. I'm fucking thrilled about this one. Um, the guest is my very old friend Mimi Nguyen, who I've known since I was a teenager, which feels appropriate because I just woke up from a night nap, and it's 10 p.m., and I'm going to finish this podcast and then stay up all night printing and shipping my zine, which is exactly what I was doing all the time when Mimi and I were friends, uh, first became friends. Um, Mimi, I know through zines, and we talk about that, uh, and um, we talk about so much else. We talk mad shit about uh, shitty men in punk, um, some of whom I, I name, one of whom she chooses not to, which I think, after she explains her reasons why, rules. Uh, Mimi talks about her childhood uh, coming to the States as a refugee from Vietnam, and her adult realizations that her refugee status was ultimately the, like the result of American empire and how that informs her scholarly work today. And we close out talking about this statement that she wrote about the massacres in Atlanta that I thought was just mind blowing. And I really hope that you all stick around and listen. I know it's a long episode because what she has to say is so incredible and I feel so grateful that I have a, a friend that's this smart. It's funny to have you on the podcast finally because you're probably the most talked about person that's ne never been a guest. <laughs> um, just because of like you, you've come up in you came up in my interview with Osa. Um, you came up in my interview with Golnar. I feel like you might have come up in my interview with Bryony, but I can't remember. I think there's a third one. Um, and I feel like I've Golnar and I have joked about how like um, there is like um, like a cohort of women in punk in our mid to late thirties uh, who were like um, like who you were our punk like our zine advisor or whatever, <laughs> uh -huh. or like I don't know. There's some kind of like mentor situation going on that like. Um, as we've all found each other later in life, there's like this affinity that we have, that we've all have for each other. And then it's like, Oh, Aww. you also knew Mimi since you were a teen or whatever. And like, we're writing letters and, uh, and it's really cool. And like, I think a lot about punk as like, um, like a, a kind of in intergenerational countercultural practice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the ways that there are like, um, like either aesthetic or like intellectual sort of lineages that you can trace mm -hmm. um, is really fascinating to me um, as like, if you think of punk as a place that can be like a, a space of opposition to capitalism and like, it's just so cool to think of like, uh, it's not like a hierarchy, but like, you know, these sort of generational pyramids where yeah. it's like, yeah, like, me and Osa Golnar. I, I'm blanking on who the last person was. I can't remember everyone who's been on the podcast is part of the problem. Um, you know, I'll have this sense that like, oh, like my, 
who I am as an adult was shaped so heavily by um, like the work of and my my personal interactions with Mimi Nguyen. Um, and that's just cool. And it's cool to finally have you on the show. You're also Aww. my friend. Yes. <laughs> yes, I am also your friend. Yeah. Um, I've known you since, uh, I don't know, something like 1997 or 1988, 1998. I was 16. Yeah, no, 15. So probably, yeah, 98. Yeah, I think, I think yeah, you emailed me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> From like a zine list or something. Yeah, we were Back on Back in a, the listserv days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were uh, zinesters at yahoogroups.com. Oh, my God. Yahoo Groups. Yeah. Um, the, the, the step past AOL. Right. And before <laughs> live journal. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Real internet. I mean, the zine doing zines really prepared me for the internet. I feel like. I think so too. Like the whole thing where you just like cold email someone randomly, just like the way you would just write to someone who wrote a zine just randomly like, Oh, Hey, this, I read your, I read your zine. Here are some thoughts. Yeah. And like the just idea like the that I, might be friends with someone who I've like exchanged like an epistolary. I have like an epistolary relationship with someone who I may never meet, but that still feels like a friendship. Yes. Um, I think prepared me for the internet in a way that like some of my peers were just like, this is weird. These <laughs> people are strangers. <laughs> um, but let's, we can get to that. Let's, um, you know, the format of the show, we, I, I like to talk about, I like to talk to um, people involved in countercultural production or like just cool shit about um, sort of the path that got them to the, um, what I consider like pretty cool adulthood that they have. Mm -hmm. um, and so let's start with, okay. you were born in Vietnam, correct? Yes, I was. I was born in Saigon in 1974. And how old were you when you came to California? Um, I was a year old when uh, my family left Vietnam. We left um, uh, as the North Vietnamese forces were moving south rapidly towards the capital of what was then South Vietnam. Um, and Saigon was the capital. Um, and so my family, family were put on a list of people to be evacuated because I had an uncle who worked for the Department of Defense. Um, and uh, so we were put on a list of people who, um, who were parts of families who might face political retaliation. Um, so that is how um, I ended up leaving Saigon with my, with my parents. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I was a year old. Uh, my mom says that we were put on a cargo plane that had, or some kind of plane where there were just no seats. We were, and I guess my mom and my dad and me were just like hunkered down on the, on the, on the bare metal of the cargo plane and flown to Guam, which was our uh, the first stop for uh, refugees from from the war. Yeah. And what's the, what's the trajectory from there? Um, we were, we were processed in Guam. Um, I, 
you know, I, I know some of the stuff just from reading um, the scholarship about it, but um, at, at, at the, at the processing refugee processing center at Guam, they, you know, told us what our options were from there. I think my parents very easily decided that, you know, they wanted to um, resettle in the United States. Um, so for instance, my, that's where I got my social security number. Um, you oh, know how the first, yeah. So the first three numbers of your social security number uh, t- say where, um, which state you're from or where you were born at or what that you received your social security number. So mine, mine indicates Guam. Um, um, so now everybody can look it up and see what the first three numbers of my social security number are. Um, and then <laughs> we, <laughs> And then we were um, flown from Guam to uh, Camp Pendleton, which is a Marine base in uh, Southern California in San Diego County, where they had set up a, another refugee camp. Um, and uh, that's where we were while we waited to find uh, sponsors in the United States who would um, take us in. Yeah. Um, what's the... Did you have people in the U.S. already that like were linked to you by kinship or community, or was it just like like what's the process of finding a sponsor? I know you were one, but like, yeah, no, um, we had nobody here when we got when we got here. We were the first people, um, you know, you know, my dad, my some of my dad's brothers and sisters were also evacuated. Um, but we were all like the first group of our family to, to come over. So we didn't have any ties. We didn't have any, we didn't know anybody here. Um, so a lot of, uh, refugees who were in similar situations were sponsored by religious organizations. So for us, it was Catholic charities, um, who Mm. found us, um, very, you know, a family in, um, Minnesota, who was willing to take us in. And so we just said, yes, I guess. <laughs> and then sure. flew to Minnesota. Um, and then we were, and then, you know, a few months later, we were, uh, we were living with a Catholic family in Minnesota. They um, already had like five kids because they were Catholic. Um, and then they shoved a, a family of three into their, into their small house. Um, How long yeah. did you live there? Um, we were there for a few months. Um, so part of the process of sponsoring a refugee family is that they help you get uh, uh, acclimated, help you find a place to live and, 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 you know, the adults jobs. They did not find a job for me. I was an infant. Right. Um, so, um, so it took a little bit of time um, to do those things. Um, but eventually, um, my family moved out into an apartment. Um, you know, I know from my s- dad's stories um, that it was initially very hard for him to find a job because he was overqualified for many things. He had been a, a he has a PhD in pharmacology and he taught at university in Saigon. And you know, he was going out for all these jobs that were, you know, like uh, factory work or, or, or sanitation work. And, and they were like, no, you know, you're too, you're overqualified. Um, 
but it took, so it took a while um, uh, for him to find a, a, a job that, um, that would, that would hire him. Um, but yeah, so eventually we, we moved out and, you know, my dad got a job. Um, my mom was pregnant, uh, and had my brother. Um, he was named George cause he was born in February and around president's day. So he was either going to be George or Abraham, uh-huh. <laughs> his American name yeah. um, in, in tribute to the presidents. <laughs> <laughs> that are that are commonly understood as the ones we are celebrating on President's Day. So yeah. he is luckily George and not Abraham. I had a friend, and I, I I'm not trying to flatten um, like Vietnamese and Korean identities by any stretch, but I, I had a friend whose parents came at around the same time, and I think they're um, and she was born in. Korea and then her twin younger brothers were born in the US and her parents named them Mario and Luigi. <gasps> oh. And I feel like there's this like like sort of that seems like a, a naming convention that I've heard of before among um like kind of across Asian countries Asian families that come to came to the US in the late 70s early 80s where like the first US kids get a US name or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had, you know, I, 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 I go by Mimi, but it wasn't the name. It's not the name on my birth certificate um, at all. It's a family nickname that I just ended up, my parents ended up using for all my, um, you know, enrollment in school and, and all these other things, but because they didn't trust, they didn't trust um, Americans to be able to say my Vietnamese name. So um, uh, yeah. So yeah. Um, so how long are you in Minnesota? I was in Minnesota until I was 12. So okay. I, grew, I grew up in Minnesota. Um, we moved, we eventually moved to a small town called Plymouth, um, where uh, my brother and I were almost the only people of color. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, I lived there until I was 12. What were you into as a kid? Um, I was, you know, I was, I was into being and embracing my weirdness. (laughs) I'll put it that way. Um, because I was very conscious of being, um, uh, a weird kid. Uh, you know, I didn't have, um, a lot of the references that the other kids had, that they would circulate amongst themselves when they talked about, you know, popular culture or clothes or music or any of that stuff. I just didn't have those same set of references. And my, I remember being very um, clear with myself that uh, I wasn't going to feel bad about not knowing those things and that I was going to be, that I was going to embrace how odd I was. Um, where do you think you got that kind of confidence from as a child? Um, my parents were very practical (laughs) and I think of it as a very practical mindset to be like that because my parents are very much like, look, I know we're, we're, uh, we're refugees in the middle of this state that is very white. Um, but you know, what are we going to do about it? We can't, there's, we don't have time to, uh, to, 
worry about it. We don't, <laughs> we don't have right. the emotional space to, 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 to feel bad about it because we have to do these other things. We've got to like, uh, my parents were like, well, we got to take care of you too. We got to uh, get enough money so that we can sponsor our relatives out of Vietnam. So they were always very practical and, and um, kind of really, uh, you know, didn't linger on the, the discrimination or the racism that we experienced. And we did experience a lot of it. Um, yeah. And I, 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 so the, their attitude was very much like, look, they're going to do, they're going to do this, but it doesn't mean it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not about us. It's a, it's about them. Like, I mean, we got our, um, our uh, mailbox blown up a bunch of times with cherry bombs. I got, we got like letters from anonymous letters from neighbors, even though we most of the time knew who they were like saying racist things to us. And every time we did my, my mom and dad would just be like, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. And we're going to do what we're going to do to um, keep each other safe and, and, and move on. So um, I was less, chill about it than them. Um, mm -hmm. I just got angry. I got angry, right. but, um, I did take away from them this, this kind of, you know, I just refused to feel badly about myself. Um, so as a kid, I was into being a weirdo and, uh, and reading. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the two things I was into being a weirdo and reading lots of books. What kind of like, what, yeah, what media were you drawn to? Like, what was the, what were the books you liked? And also, like, I'm always curious what the first, because um, we come from, like, a shared music subculture. Like, what was the first music, like, the first tape you just, like, wore out or, like, really identified with? Those are two um, questions. <laughs> I read a lot of fantasy fiction, and I still do. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what I read. I remember reading, like, Robin McKinley and Ursula Le Guin really early. Um, just a lot. Uh, Anne McCaffrey, who is problematic, but I didn't know it at the time because I was <laughs> 10. Um, so I read a lot of fantasy fiction. Sure. Um, and I had it in my head very early on that I was going to write fantasy fiction and or illustrate it. Um, okay. Those are my, those are my goals until I discovered punk. Um, that's mine too, as a child. <laughs> um, and then musically, I, you know, I remember, you know, I knew the one thing that I had to be into because I was from Minnesota was Prince. And that was easy because oh, Prince, is, Prince is amazing. <laughs> so I definitely remember that, you know, everybody had to be into Prince because, because he was, he was, he was our, one of ours. Um, but, uh, you know, the first thing I can really remember being into is Cyndi Lauper. Yeah, that's real. Um, what a route for you. Yes, yes. So Cyndi Lauper, her whole aesthetic, um, uh, her music, that was, I think that was the first um, tape I had that I was really, was really, I listened to all, over, uh, all the time. Yeah. And so then when you're 12, where you guys leave Minnesota? Yes, yes. Oh, but I have one more thing to say. <laughs> um, the other person I remember being into now, but I not knowing that I was into was Pat Benatar. 
Yes. But, I, but I didn't know I was into Pat Benatar because the first time I heard a Pat Benatar song, it was a Vietnamese cover of Hit Me With Your Best Shot. And oh. I was at like some kind of event with my parents and there was a singer, a Vietnamese woman who was singing Hit Me With Your Best Shot in English and in Vietnamese. And I was like, this is an amazing song. I love this song. Um, and I didn't realize until later that it was Pat Benatar that I was really, um, who, who, had, who was the originator of that song. Yeah. So I was, I was into Pat Benatar without knowing that I was into Pat Benatar. Yeah, great style semi-apocalyptic everything and then yes. also like um classic standing drummer situation in a lot of the videos <laughs> really the the legend of billy jean song invincible the standing oh drummers God. dancing on like that factory rubble uh or whatever it's i i love it <laughs> i just put hell is for children on a mixtape like literally four hours ago so good yeah um and so then you, and this is also another like, Pat Benatar and Cindy Lauper both seem like direct gateways to punk. Yes, yes. I mean, for me, I, I had seen punk on TV mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, it was the 80s. So punks were always um, the drug dealing gang members right. on, on TV. Um, so I knew that the, there was a thing that had been punk. Uh, but only filtered through through um, the t television villainy. Um, uh, but I had neighbors across the street who were metal kids, and they were the nice kids to us. Um, uh, the the you know like the the older brother would be like playing guitar in his garage in his like shirt with the sleeves torn off. Um, and, and he was always really nice to me and my brother. So I, I also imprinted on, on metal kids that way. For sure. Yeah. It makes so much sense. And it also like, it also just makes sense that, I mean, I could see a different path. It would make sense if like the metal kids were super racist or whatever, but like mm -hmm. it, there's a real, the, some of the, folks that were into metal in that in those years that I know that like later got into hardcore punk or whatever. Um, like it really, there was like a sense of like alienation and uh, like sort of tenderness and um, a desire to relate to others that were feeling those same things. Yeah. I mean, that's um, what I imagine it came from, right? Like, cause yeah. they, I think they, they were, I think they felt, um, they definitely felt some kind of alienation. I know that they were both adopted and, and knew that. And I think that they were working it out somehow. I mean, I don't know how I knew this is at 10 or 11, but, um, <laughs> but you know, so like, I, I, I do feel like they felt some kind of affinity to the, to the weird refugee kids across the street. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, and then when you leave Minnesota, do you go, cause you lived in the Bay as a teen, right? Um, I didn't, I moved there for college. Ah, so, okay. So where do yeah. you go from Minnesota? So we went to San Diego. Right. Right. Um, said that. Yeah. So we went to San Diego where, um, you know, my, my family had managed to sponsor, um, a number of my, mo my mother's family who were not evacuated, um, uh, out of Vietnam. And so my grandmother and my aunt, 
and my uncle and his wife and two kids at all, all at one point they were living with us in Minnesota, but, um, uh, eventually my grandmother and, uh, my aunt moved to little Saigon in, um, Southern California. And we, uh, followed and moved to San Diego. Okay. And then you're, so you're a teen and is that where you get into punk in San Diego? Yes. That is where I get into punk. So what's the, give me the, like, what's, tell me about that. <laughs> um, well, I was definitely an alternatine by the time I um, uh, got into eighth grade, which was like the first full grade that I uh, experienced in, in, in San Diego. I was mm -hmm. hanging out with the skater kids and I was listening to, you know, alternative rock uh, you know, um, the cure Susie and the Banshees. Um, who else was around? Who else was I listening to? Um, echo and the Bunnymen. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so I was an alternative. I was listening to a lot of the music that, uh, the skater kids had introduced me to. I was also hanging out with, um, the Asian girls who had like the oversized tops and the tease bangs that were like super big and like just giant candy, candy floss clouds of hair. Um, and, uh, um, you know, and so I became aware that there were, you know, I was in subcultures. Yeah. Uh, I was around them and, uh, um, it was in that time that I started to realize that um, that punk was still a thing. It wasn't just a thing that was on TV. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it wasn't all a bunch of uh, villains. Um, <laughs> um, although, you know, uh, I like to think of myself sometimes as, as still a villain. Um, and uh, so I started to edge my way towards punk. Um, I hadn't met any punks I, or, you know, I just knew skater kids and I knew goth kids and I was like kind of goth, hanging out with a bunch of goth kids and I was kind of goth, even though, you know, I, I, I wasn't super into hanging out in cemeteries. Um, I, <laughs> I, I did it. <laughs> I did it to hang out with them. Um, yeah. you know, I was wearing black and all of that. And, and I, and, but I think I got, but I got into punk proper when, um, uh, I picked up my first maximum. Yes. 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 I my, love it. <laughs> my, so, you know, I was just kind of like an alternative. I was kind of goth. I was kind of like hanging out with the skaters or whatever, yeah. but, and, uh, and, um, my dad, used to take me downtown all the time to go to the main library. And one day I asked him if he would take me to this alternative store because I wanted to get some striped tights. Um, and he was like, okay, sure. And it was called the Black Cat in, in downtown San Diego. And they were giving away back issues of Maximum. Um, and uh, I, I picked up um, some back issues yeah. Um, and then I became a punk rocker. I love it. <laughs> and did you, what, like from Max, I had a similar 
I think experience where I like, I mean, there was like a sort of established local punk scene where I lived, but I, I felt connected to punk in a broader sense when I first, when I got my first issue of maximum. Yeah. Well, but like, what's the, from maximum, how do you like, are, do you then find shows in San Diego? Do you meet other punks? Like what, what's the sort of path into subcult, like to fully immersion in subculture? Well, San Diego is a really big city. It's a big sprawling city. So I didn't even know how to begin to find other punks. Um, And um, so my first awareness of punk was as an international scene through Maximum. Less, less, I knew less about it as a local scene at all. Right. Um, So, you know, I, 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 read Maximum and started picking it up everywhere I could. Um, and I've eventually found the punk kids um, in San Diego. Um, but, you know, I didn't have a car, so I couldn't get around mm-hmm. to get to the shows, which were, uh, you know, like at the Che Cafe um, on the campus of uh, UC San Diego or whatever. Um, and I knew who the punk kids were at my high school and they were very nice to me. Um, They were positive force types of punks Uh or um, uh, one of them lent me um, a positive force um, uh, compilation. Um, I didn't, I wasn't into the music. Um, (laughs) I wasn't into this positive force bands, but, um, or, you know, I think that the drummer of rocket from the crypt went to my high school. So uh, (laughs) his, his girlfriend was really nice to me when I was first trying to find other punks. Um, but yeah, like I, I didn't identify with the punks that I knew at my high school because, um, the punk that I was really, invested in I was introduced to through maximum and it was anarchist punk right um, um, you know I was and political punk right I mean like um, you know I read I read Jane Guskin's columns about uh, Reagan's covert wars in Central America and um, and it you know just it just you know, I mean, I got my, my, my radical, my first radical education was from, from punk. Um, yeah. And the San Diego, I think of the San Diego punk scene as like s- sort of style and fashion oriented more than political and like maybe sort of uh, uh, like a, like a rockabilly or garage rock cusp aesthetically. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I mean, there was definitely like a hardcore scene there that was sure, political, for sure. right? But I wasn't, I wasn't able to access it because it was no, it was not at my school, and I right. again, I didn't have a car, um, so I knew, you know, I did manage one time to rope a friend into driving me to a show at Che Cafe where I saw Struggle, like the hardcore band or whatever. Oh, for sure, yeah. Um, but I, I, and I think I met um, some hardcore kids at a. Uh, an abortion rights rally. Um, uh, but otherwise my, my, my access to the local scene was really constricted. So I, I lived my punk life through maximum and zines. And did you start doing zines in high school? Yeah, I started doing zines in high school. I had done like 
you know, a newsletter when I was in elementary school, like <laughs> with like clip art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and when all the clip art was like super pixelated and of like office workers um, <laughs> using fax machines and stuff. Um, but I had done a, like a newsletter with a friend in sixth grade. Um, but yeah, I started doing zines in 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 high school. Um, Do you remember what your first zine was called? Um, I did a newsletter, a one page zine called Institutionalized. Um, <laughs> yes. I did that for a couple <laughs> issues. Um, yeah, yeah, and then I and then I also wrote for the for my my school newspaper. I did sure. I did I did the editorial cartoons and editorials about um, the war, the the first Persian Gulf War, and I also did I also wrote the horoscopes. <laughs> That's such a like a perfect cross section <laughs> for for you. It was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. So so you're doing zines. This is what now? It's like the early nineties. Early nineties. Yeah. Um, you're in high school. You're doing zines, and you're trading zines via, or like ordering zines via Maximum yeah. and like uh, Fact Sheet Five or whatever. Yeah. Um, what were the zines you were really into? Like, what were the zines that you looked up to? Um, you know, I don't know that I, I'm trying to remember. I think I, I mean, I mean, I, I got a bunch of the Riot Girl zines at the time. Mm -hmm. Really, honestly, though, like Maximum was, yeah, you know, and it's very weird because I've, you know, I have such a long history with Maximum. Um, but, uh, Maximum was really like my number one fave, um, yeah. as a, as a, as a isolated punk in the San Diego suburbs, um, Maximum was absolutely my lifeline to a version of punk that, um, I strongly wanted in my life. Yes. Um, so I have to, I have to say it was maximum. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. makes sense. I mean, that's why I wanted to move to the Bay area to go to school. Like right. I only applied to one school, uh, because I didn't want to go anywhere else. I wanted to be where the, where I thought all the political punks were. And that was, that was the Bay area. So what's it like when you, you get there? Um, where'd you go to school? I went to Berkeley. I went okay, to UC Berkeley. Yeah. So I, I applied to one school <laughs> um, um, and it was Berkeley and I wanted to move to the Bay area to be where all the punks are. And, um, you know, it was the first time that I experienced like a, a local scene really. Um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah. And I, you know, made my first friend um, within like my first few punk friends within like a, the first month I was there. I met two punks who were working in the dining commons at my dorm. Um, <laughs> cool. <laughs> um, and one of them I went on to do a zine with, uh, Marik, uh, uh, and we did Aim Your Dick. And then the other one I went on to volunteer with at Epicenter, and that was Tate Graves. Cool. Um, yeah. So I met, they, they both worked at the dining commons. They saw like Tate 
was like serving me on the line and saw that I wore all black and only ate vegetarian stuff and started chatting me up about, um, about being punk and, and yeah, so it went from there. Did you have a conception of your queerness at this time? Um, I did. I did. I knew it when I was in high school um, and uh, it was the source of some controversy and, and conflict between my parents and I at the time, um, as well as being punk, like the whole thing sure. was just like really distressing for them because they didn't quite understand it. Um, which of course, you know, it was the late eighties and there was a huge punk scare in, um, uh, you know, there's a metal scare, punk scare, mm -hmm. um, in the, in the late eighties. And, and that was what my, my parents knew about it. Um, uh, so, so yeah, so that's, that was, so I, I knew I was queerish when I was in high school. Um, and, uh, when I moved to the Bay area, um, it was a whole new world. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yes. Yes. Of, of many different things, but definitely, definitely being queer, being political, being punk, um, all those things, um, were just, uh, just very open to me in a, in, and, and I was open to, to all of it. I just was like, I, I wanted, I wanted to know everything about all these things. Yeah. Uh, all these, all these ways of being in the world. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I relate to that so strongly, like just like the desire to like the, to be part, like the immediate identification with a form of political punk on like just an instinctual level. And then the desire to organize your whole life around being able to be part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, and for me, part of that was, was you, right? Like part of that was, I think I first encountered your work through a punk group, punk planet column. Oh my, my God. Mm -hmm. And then met you on the internet and then like <laughs> heard about your zines. And I don't think I actually read, um, slander or slant until way later until like the early 2000s mm -hmm. like i don't think i actually got copies in the 90s um or like i hated i hated doing distro yeah i didn't really try <laughs> hard either. You know? i just like i knew you were cool and i wanted to be your friend <laughs> i hate reading um <laughs> tell me about epicenter um that was a volunteer record store right Yes, Epicenter was a volunteer-run record store slash sometime community center, um, which I first heard about in Maximum because, you know, I mean, Tim Yohannan helped to start it, but also because um, it was where um, rioters during um, the Rodney King riots and the Gulf War riots in San Francisco would go and uh, run into the store to, to get away from cops. Um, oh. Which is which is why the store slogan is uh, open for holidays, closed for riots. Um, <laughs> um, because we were open for holidays, because you know we were all we were all punk kids who didn't necessarily go home for holidays for right. lots of different reasons. Uh, so we were open to hang out with each other, but then also closed closed for riots because we were either out there or 
or um, hiding people inside the store. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah. So Epicenter was a record store. I worked uh, every Saturday for uh, a couple years. I wasn't a part of this necessarily, but there was a switchboard set up in the in the Zine Library where people who needed access to different kinds of resources, um, you know, like housing resources, um, needle exchange type stuff, safe injection stuff. Um, uh, could call the, the, the switchboard for, for help. Um, and we had shows and we, uh, hosted all kinds of meetings in the, in the space. So, um, what my memory is that we were always having to repaint and repair things. I mean, that's, (laughs) that's eventually what did in, uh, Epicenter was, uh, a shows at Epicenter was that, um, there was a show and somebody, jumped up and grabbed one of the water pipes and flooded the store. Um, And we never had shows there again. Right. Yeah. It seems like such a wild and cool place to have as like sort of the epicenter of your social world or whatever as. Oh, uh, it really was. As someone in like living in a city involved in a punk scene, you know, like um, kind of for the first time. Um, and by the time I knew you, you were not living in the Bay anymore because you were pursuing a really, like a, a pretty serious career in academia. Well, um, I think I could be, I could be wrong. I think we met when I was back in the Bay area because that was right. Yeah. Because I, I did, I did leave to go to New York for uh, a PhD program in American studies at NYU. And I mm-hmm. wanted to go to graduate school because I had graduated with a undergraduate degree in gender and women's studies. And I was worried that um, I would have to get a job at a nonprofit and I didn't want to do that. So, <laughs> um, um, so I was like, I'll just go do more school. Um sure. So, and I, and I wanted to go to graduate school to think about um, activism and, and to just have some time to think about, because um, I was a clinic defense organizer uh, okay. when I was in the Bay Area. And it was, um, you know, I was with a more radical uh, clinic defense group um, uh, made up of just uh, queer, a lot of queerdos. And, um, we, so we would do things like we would go to their, the, their churches and, and protest them, um, Ah. back. Um, and when they would, uh, you know, when the antis, we call them the antis, uh, would go to doctor's homes, um, to protest, we would go out there to, um, um, annoy them, annoy the, annoy the antis when they were trying to do this you know, just to provide some kind of buffer. Um, uh, yeah. And like brattiness as, um, absolutely. Is yeah. Like a classic punk. Absolutely. Action. We followed them around. Like we made these, um, bubble thought bubbles and we would like follow them <laughs> around. Um, the, and that said things like, Oh, I can't wait to go home and beat my wife. Or, um, um, you know, I wonder when I can get that, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the chemical, but it was a chemical that was often used to, um, that they often used to uh, put in, they would throw it into clinics and then it would pervade all the organic material, like the 
couches and the carpets and, and just make it so that everyone who walked in vomited or whatever. So, um, you know, so we, we would make comments about how they were, they couldn't wait to pick up their next shipment of this, of this chemical and, and things like that. So we just followed them around. Like we were just doing our best to troll them, uh, before, before it was called trolling. Um, and, and that's how we were when we did a clinic defense too. Um, so, um, but I, you know, and, but at the same time that we were doing these really silly things, we were very serious as well. We had like a researcher in our group who was like writing these reports about their ties with white supremacists um, um, through evangelical churches, which of course we know is a lethal combination. Um, right. And so I wanted to go to graduate school to really think about um, what a reproductive uh, rights activist framework could look like in the context of of all these things that we were grappling with um and the and the and uh yeah and then thinking about like what like the the antis had such a clear visceral aesthetic right of like bloodied fetuses and things like that and Mm -hmm. and i wanted to think about like what do we like how do we counteract that so that's what i went to graduate school for but then i left nyu because i didn't like it yeah i went back to the bay area to finish school yes to do more school but i didn't necessarily want to be an academic at the time i just didn't like i said i just didn't want to have to think about getting um a serious job yeah that makes sense yeah so i worked at bookstores and that's, and that's what I wanted to do and then learn stuff. So, so yeah. Yeah. Um, did you do, were you involved in punk in New York at all? Or were you just too busy with school? Um, yeah, I was totally involved in punk in, in, in New York. I mean, I was definitely having feelings about it because of what I had gone through, um, with maximum around, um, uh, the columnist who wrote about, um, who wrote a very racist column, racist, sexist, yeah, gender-based violence kind of column and, and the response to it from Maximum, mm-hmm. um, which then led me to do the race riot zines. Um, so I was definitely in a moment of, of deep disillusionment with punk, yeah. but I didn't know what else I would be into um, because I had, I mean, I had, really just been like all in like I was like I'm punk for life this is this is it um you know it shaped for me this whole way of making observations about the world it taught me how to eat how to dress you know how to live with other people how to talk about power how to have fun and to fuck shit up and um how to feel about all of this and and then to have that whole situation unfold in the way that it did was really um, was really crushing to me at the time. And so that's, that's also partly why I I decided to go so far away from the Bay area. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's just to interject really briefly. Like, I think I've talked to you before about how, like, I feel like your, um, your influence on me as a young person was really foundational in my not turning out shitty. And you've always (laughs) been like, you've always been like, Colin, you were always so gentle and sweet. Um, and like maybe that's true, but I was just looking at a picture of myself when I was like fifteen or sixteen, 
It's like a funny picture where I'm wearing a leather jacket and I have a spiked mohawk and I'm sitting in my grandma's lap and she's a little and I'm wearing a t-shirt of the, that guy's band. Oh, wow. That I had Mm -hmm. got at a show at Coney Island high because there was like some MRR columnist showcase. Yeah. And because I felt like a like wordy nerd, I was like, oh, I I relate to this guy Mm -hmm. because I was 14 or 15. I had, I had a, I I mean, I think I'd like to think I had an instinctual conception that like some of what he was saying felt off to me, but I was open enough to the idea that I didn't know about the world that like, um, I, you know, I, I don't, I think that it is the being raised as a young white man is such a pernicious experience. And that's not like to elicit sympathy for young white men. I'm, but like, there are so many um, factors pushing just like the implicitly pushing you towards systems of violence and reifying systems of violence. And what this makes clear is like, even within punk, right. Even through maximum rock and roll, and I don't feel com- confident that I can take credit for not turning out like that, like just mm-hmm. exclusively. I feel mm-hmm. like it's really, it was the work of like so many um, cool adult women who saw something worthwhile in me and were like, no, 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 that stuff sucks. And <laughs> I don't think you and I ever had an explicit conversation about that band, um, but I, and I'm not mentioning the name because you didn't. I'm happy to talk shit publicly about anything. <laughs> F- FYI. Um, but I maybe read a, I read about it in a column or I read about it in Race Riot when I finally did. However, I finally found out. But I, I remember finding out at some point like, oh, this person is fucked up to someone I care about. And that was the entry point for me to be like, oh, no, this person is just fucked up overall. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really is, I think about that a lot. I think about that a lot as like, kind of a, like, I could have just been some razor cake pop punk douche. You know what I mean? Like I really, <laughs> God, you're not right. Um, <laughs> you know, like what other, what other, just to sidetrack into shit talking for half a second. Let's do it. How do you have a fanzine? With a budget like that, I'm talking about Razor Cake, that does, um, that it ha- is like about, like has all these cover stories about like trans and queer shit and we're cool, at, that has feature- proudly featured one well-known sexual predator um, of teen girls, Rich Mackin, and mm. then this other dude who I'm, I don't, I'm not going to name if you're not um, who has been actively racist forever. Yeah. How is that? How is that a progressive publication? And they defended it again and again and again. Yeah. It's fucking shocking. Yeah. Pop punk is a virus on punk. (laughs) I, 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 I am here. I am here for that. Yeah. (laughs) You didn't say any of that. That those are all my opinions. No, I agree. Pop punk is a virus. Yeah, I like so some now, of it. So now I said it. Cool. <laughs> I like some of that Bay stuff. I like the. I like. Uh, I like Hickey running illegal needle exchanges and right. 
advertising them via stickers on skateboards or whatever. Um, I like some of the Chattanooga wild crack smoking pop punk, but like those are all different worlds from the pop punk that I'm talking about, which is pernicious. Yes. White boy shit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I just don't say his name just because like, I mean, in the, in the aftermath of all of that, um, he actually really enjoyed it when I mentioned him by name. Right. So like, I remember, um, after I, uh, so after he wrote this column about how, um, you know, Asian women's eyes are slanted and he wonders if their pussies are too. And Mm -hmm. I wrote in the letter to Maximum protesting that this was like racialized misogyny. Um, And then um, the, this is the shortest version. Um, The Mac, uh, the uh, Tim thought, uh, uh, then that person wrote another column about how that was all about trashing me um, uh, for being a feminist. So I was probably ugly, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a debate at the magazine about whether or not to run this column because it was attacking a a person who was me, who, you know, people at maximum knew because there was so much, um, overlap between maximum and epicenter. And, uh, and, uh, Tim decided to run it as uh, satire. So, um, which got back to me. Yeah. And so, you know, it, and then it just went from there because um, it somehow made this person semi-notorious in a way that he kept doing, that he kept up, right? So he wrote a song about wanting to rape me. Oh. That's very, that's all full of like the racialized misogyny that, you know, yeah. Um, um, and then uh, he would run ads for shows that he was playing in the Bay Area that would mention me. I mean, like, so I don't mention his name and I don't mention yeah. his band on purpose because, I mean, it's like 30 years later or whatever. But, you know, like, fuck that guy, you know. Yeah, fuck that guy. He, he uh, doesn't get to be a part of the story in that way. So right. I, um, um, so yeah, so he, he for a very long time has um, traded uh, on my name as, um, a kind of, uh, ironic racist badge. Right. So, um, so I don't, so I don't say his name. Yeah. Fuck him. Um, if if through talking about razor cakes, someone that listens, listens to this podcast, hears what we're talking about and figures it out and mentions it to that guy. And he hears this. I just want you to know, I'm going to break your glasses. If I see you, (laughs) I, feel like I was mildly responsible for getting the Glenn Greenwald of punk, Michael Board, uh, <laughs> from Maximum Finally, um, which is like a real, I probably shouldn't say that because I don't think I can actually take credit for it. Um, <laughs> I'd like to think, I'd like to think it was, it all came, they, Maximum ran a column, an interview that Cindy Crabb did, whose house I'm at right now, much love um, to the many, women in zines who have uh, buttressed me and supported me throughout my life. Um, that Cindy Krebs did with the Survivor Support Collective that I was part of in New York, Support New York. And Michael Board, ran, who once asked me when I was 16 how much heroin it would take to get me in bed. Um, to his benefit, there is like a robust history of cruising culture that exists within punk. 
I thought it was funny. I did not feel creeped on. And when I told him none, he was like, sick, look, let's go get a cab. And I was like, no, 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 none, because I don't do heroin and you're old. He never tried to sexualize me again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and I, because I'm not trying to like just impugn this dude um, for things that he didn't do, just what he did do, which is be a fucking idiot. Um, and he wrote some column about how accountability processes are stupid or whatever. And the resulting uproar of that. I think finally resulted in people um, disobeying the ghost of Tim Yohannan's wishes and taking Michael Board's column away. And he mm-hmm. too, like, spends all of his energy on the internet. It seems trading in the fact that he was like uh, censored by Maximum Rock and Roll, right? And it's people, like he, people love to do that. <laughs> they, it's like a badge of these honor. fucking guys. Yeah, get up. Yeah, like just do. There's just so much better stuff to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, than that. Yeah. And I had a real, like, um, like I-, I owned all of that band seven inches that I bought while I was in high school before I realized what was going on with them. And I had a really, um, I had a really, like, I had this like moment of intense moral panic where I was like, well, I can't sell them because then someone else will have them, but I don't want to have them. Cause then someone might look through my records and see them. Um, and I just broke them all in half. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, anyway, we're really um, far afield. Fuck a bunch of these men. Uh, <laughs> yes. The end of it uh, in the past. Also, fuck the men who buttress them now and pretend that they're doing um, something good for the world by putting a trans person on the cover of their magazine. And um, that's why you wrote Slant. Is that what you said? Um, I mean, that's why I wrote Race Riot. Race Riot. Right, right, right. right. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah. So, that's that's what convinced me. That's why I started doing... I did did Race Riot because I imagined um, there had to be... You know, this is pre-internet. I mean, this is... The internet was around as AOL, but I had no way of finding anybody, really. I didn't, you know. So, uh, um, so, yeah. I knew there had to be other people of color in punk or punk adjacent scenes that wanted to talk ex- explicitly about how racism racism showed up in the scene and not in the way that you know up until then when race or racism was talked about it was like about nazi skins or you know the national front and and all that um but not not within the scene um there there was just wasn't really a conversation about it so i wanted to have that conversation um and that's that's what made me want to do the race riot compilation. Yeah. Which is like, I think a lot of people is a lot of, is how many people related to punk know of your work um, or like is one of the things that's most um, heavily associated with you. So do you want to, do you want to explain for the listener what the race riot compilation was? Yeah. So I, I, after the whole dust up with maximum and, the kind of really crushing disappointment I felt about this thing that I loved so much. Um, uh, basically sh- uh, shoving me aside. That's how mm-hmm. I felt. Yeah. Um, uh, I wanted to do the race riot zine um, and, and find other punks of color 
to have a conversation about our experiences in this, in this, in the, in, in these scenes. Um, so I, you know, I made like a ton of postcards. I sent them to like punk stores. I sent them to anybody whose zine it seemed like was made by a person of color that I could find in fact sheet five or, or in maximum. I told, asked friends to ask friends. Um, and, uh, eventually put together, um, the compilation zine race riot, um, which I still think is probably the best thing I will have ever done in my life. Whoa. Yeah. I love it. I love, I love that I did it. I love what it brought into my life. Um, I helped me, uh, it, it helped, you know, like I already had been convinced by punk that, you know, we could, we could, we could bring another world into being with our actions. And I felt um, that race riot um, was my small contribution into, 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 to doing that. Yeah. Um, that we, you know, that the ordinary things that we did um, could, could make some kind of um, difference. Um, and it, and so, yeah, so I still, I have a lot of affection for the race riot scene. More people will read that zine still than they, you know, will ever read any of my academic work. So, <laughs> so I have, I, I, I feel like it, it, it is probably one of the more important things I've done in my life. Wow. Yeah. How, just like an aside, before we keep talking about the project, how does it feel to feel like you might have done the most important thing you're going to do in your life? Like, what is that? I wonder about cool. that sometimes. <laughs> it's tight, it's, right? It's totally cool, you know. And I'm I and I did it young enough that I I can I get I get to bask in the glow of mm -hmm. of having already done it. And you know, now I I I've not saying that I've peaked, but because uh, I still have a lot of stuff to do. But um, you know, I I'm. <laughs> that's a joke yeah, but I, I, I mean know. I do still have a lot to do. <laughs> but um but yeah no I mean it's been it's it's been really um you know it it was really important for me to do at the time to save my own life mm -hmm. and I can't say enough how much I appreciate um the kinds of connections I've made with people because of it. Um, I think doing the race riot, which I had intended as a farewell to punk actually kept me in punk. Um, uh, because I made the kinds of friendships that would sustain, that would sustain, that sustained a vision of punk for me that, that, um, that I was originally drawn to. Yeah. Yeah. And you're still involved in punk. Yes. Yeah. I'm still punk. Yeah. I mean, not just like, like people like you and me are never going to not be punk. Yeah. But like, you're still involved in punk in that, like you are, are still participating in big and small ways in punk projects. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was, I was involved in with, with, you know, with Maximum, when I was in the Bay Area for graduate school, I, I was a shit worker for a really long time, as well as writing for um, Punk Planet. Um, 
you know, I still did things for maximum after, after I left the Bay area. Um, um, you know, I was always a supporter of, um, the takeover of maximum by, you know, Golnar and, and Miriam and, and Grace and, and so many amazing people. Um, so I've, yeah, so I've been in, I've still been involved for, for all this time. Yeah. 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 yeah there's, we'll keep the shit talking around that private. <laughs> yes. Um, it's not about any of the people you mentioned. No, I love all of them. I love all of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, so let's touch on your academic work. Uh, okay. Because I feel like I definitely was just like really into drugs and I was 18 and I was in high school and I have like, I come from like a wealthy suburban family in Westchester County and was like, well, I guess I'm going to go to college. Um, and I was like, I'm going to get a gender studies degree because M Mimi is the coolest person I know. <laughs> um, and it turns out I don't, I don't like college and I never finished. Um, but you were really helpful, like uh, translating Judith Butler sentences into like uh, pedestrian English for me and stuff. Oh my God. I remember that email. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of emails and like, <laughs> I remember a, a, like a correspondence we had about, um, like a Chandra Mohanty essay maybe. Oh yeah. Um, but about citizenship, I can't remember what it was about immigration mm. or something, but mm -hmm. um, in, it was in the book feminism without borders. I don't know why this is all coming back to me so vividly. Um, <laughs> I guess like 10 years of sobriety, two years on hormones and getting on the right psych meds means like the, um, the haze of my past is slowly sort of opening up into lucidity. But, um, <laughs> But yeah, like I definitely was like, I'm a freak. I'm like a zine freak. What are the other zine freaks doing with their lives? Like it's, oh, it's been a thing for me forever to be like, what are like part of this podcast is like, what are models of what we can do as grownups mm -hmm. where our lives don't feel fucking miserable. Um, but also, you know, uh, we're like still contributing to whatever the sense, like being true to our young selves in whatever way is possible. Obviously that's not being, having complete fidelity to your young self is, is insane. Um, <laughs> that's like the casualties or whatever, you know, it's yeah. like, <laughs> get me out of here. But, um, <laughs> the, um, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I guess like you, Every time I've asked you about your career in academia, you were like, well, that was not what I wanted. It's just something that I was trying to avoid another thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so how did it end up? You're the chair of a department. Uh, I will be probably again soon, but oh, I have know. been chair. Yeah. You have been chair. Yeah. Um, of the gender and women's studies department. Yeah. At Champaign, University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. Yeah. To me, it seems like I can imagine a really straight line from zines to not wanting to get a nonprofit job. So going to grad school to just being like, <laughs> oh, fine, I'm going to just keep doing this. I'm going to keep doing this thing where I write and like um, interact with people younger than me in a way that is like uh, kind of casually a mentorship. Like all those things are stuff you were doing as a zine person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So looking back, it makes sense. Like 
you know, when I say that I didn't think I, I didn't want to, uh, I, I wasn't really thinking about being an academic. Um, I was always thinking about being a writer. Yes. Um, so um, that, that's been, that, that is definitely the through line from, from zines to, and loving zines to um, becoming now uh, a, a, an, an academic um, is that I, I love writing. Um, I love thinking, like I, I need to write in order to think through my thoughts um, mm -hmm. and to make them coherent. So, um, so yeah, so I, I, it, it really is writing that, that, that keeps me in. Um, but for sure, I found out that I could write about the things that I cared about that I first learned from punk um, in a way that was important to me. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that I was introduced to, um, you know, the covert wars in um, Central America that were fueled by, you know, Cold, Cold War anti-communism um, on the part of the United States and through reading columns, Jane Guskin's columns in Maximum Rock and Roll. And that was really key for me to begin to even ask questions about why I was in the United States as a refugee. Sure. Um, because, you know, we didn't, it's not like I learned about the <laughs> Vietnam War in, in school, um, in high school. I, you know, I, I just didn't know how to really think about it. Um, or that I should um, until I, you know, except by my encounter with, with um, these columns and Maximum and, and starting to work through like, oh, this is what happened in Vietnam. This is, this is also what happened in Vietnam, right? The U.S., the, U, the Cold War anti-communism, U.S. military intervention. Um, this is exactly what happened um, in Vietnam, and and this is why I'm I'm in the United States now. Um, so that's how I I ended up moving through graduate school was wanting to write about this thing that the seed of it was 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 the radical education I got from punk, and yeah. um, and you know, coming to realize that my research questions were deeply informed by a, a certain kind of slant of perception that I got from punk as well. Like, you know, because one of the things that, you know, you, you learn to ask in punk is like, there are all these things that we're supposed to want, but I don't want it. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, uh, and that's how I came to think about my research questions as an academic is that there are these things that are given to us as necessary social goods, like the gift of freedom. Mm -hmm. um, but they do so much more than what they claim to do. And what if we, what if we don't want this gift that um, puts us in debt to empire um, endlessly. Right. Right. Um, so punk actually, you know, the, the, that kind of attitude that I learned from punk, right, that, you know, there, people are telling me I should want these things, that I should want, um, uh, you know, a, a good job and a nice house in the suburbs and that I should want to 
fit in and all these other, you know, all the heteronormative, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. capitalist bullshit. Um, the way that punk asked questions about um, those things um, or how I learned to ask questions about those things from punk also informed the work that I ended up doing in the academy. So it 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 does make sense looking back. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about the gift of freedom and like the sort of premise of the book? Yeah, I mean the premise of the gift of freedom. It really started in um, 1995 when I went to a 20 year uh, commemoration of the refugee camps at Camp Pendleton uh, with my family, and I was just like this this so it was like a celebration that was put together by um Vietnamese former Vietnamese refugees and uh you know so I rode the bus into this marine base camp with my family and they had the um you know the barracks where uh that were once converted into um like classrooms and and dining areas for the refugees they had erected the oil tarp tents that we had stayed in. Um, and I was just like walking around being really stunned by the display of gratitude, of refugee gratitude mm-hmm. in this um, militarized space um, of US empire where, you know, one imagines that people were went through basic training there to go and kill Vietnamese people in Vietnam. So I was just very, I was just, I was just really feeling this dissonance and I was, you know, I was a punk kid. I was feeling this dissonance of being in this space and of, of seeing all these like, thank you America uh, banners and, and next to like a decommissioned helicopter and sitting under the oil tarp tent on a, on a, caught with my dad as he told me stories about like what it was like in there. And I um, started to think like, why am I, why are we supposed to be grateful for this? Yeah. What are we grateful for? Um, What are we supposed to be grateful for? What is this kind of compulsion to thank America? Um, And um, so that's, that, that was the seed of the book, the gift of freedom that is, really thinking about like how the United States various geopolitical interventions in the last century are framed as granting freedom through violence to um, others who are imagined to be lacking it. Um, And how, um, you know, this language of war and peace actually targeted the same populations for control and interference. and, and thinking about freedom as uh, this kind of force um, that, uh, that was insidious uh, in part because, you know, when you're given the gift of freedom, you are compelled to adhere to this totally impossible debt for it, right? Because the gift, mm-hmm. the gift of freedom is so huge. Like you're just, in, you're just forever indebted for for this gift. And at the same time, as the, there's this kind of continuous threat of its, you know, future withdrawal. So you're never actually free. You're just always in debt to those who say that they have freed you. Um, 
So, so yeah, so that's really what that book, that book is about, is about um, thinking about what that, what that looks like, what, what this imposition of a debt looks like for, for refugees. Yeah. And like freedom itself is, is immaterial and it's like such yes. a nebulous, it's like nebulous concept. Like it's not, it's like, it's, I, it, you know, I never, I didn't think about it like this in terms like this when I was young, but like, there's not, there's a real parallel if you look at like, like missionary work or whatever, where people mm-hmm. are like, like trying to go bring Christ to it. Absolutely. Right. Where it's just like, oh no, I just like, some people want to impose an ideological framework on other people that, that they think is better. And then they render your family homeless in trying to impose that ideological framework. And then they ask you to be grateful for them letting you come hang out under a tent. Yes. Yes. That's deeply simplistic. (laughs) But it's, it's, you know, I mean, that's, you know, one of the things I, I talk about in the book is how, you know, for instance, um, the, the assistant attorney general who wrote the Patriot Act um, after 9-11 was a Vietnamese, former Vietnamese refugee. And he talks about writing the Patriot Act as a kind of uh, uh, repayment to uh, the United States for the gift of freedom. But of course, the Patriot Act was the absolute legend, you know, I wish we could have our cameras on right now because I, the face that I'm fucking making (laughs) that. Yeah. Right. So it's like, it's like this, he, you know, he like, he's repaying the debt for the gift of freedom through the pursuit of endless war on behalf of us empire. And, you know, this is a figure, this is, so this come, you know, it's also, you know, the, the, um, I think he has said that he's resigning, but, the there was a new director of ICE who was also a Vietnamese refugee, um, who then authorized right the accelerated deportation of mm-hmm. of of undocumented persons, um, rejected asylum seekers altogether, with the argument that you know n- newcomers only accrue more debt and abuse American generosity and all this other stuff. So he, he and he did the billboards. Um, naming undocumented persons um, as if they were uh, already, always already criminal, right? right? Um, yeah, so, and, and he also talked about his own work doing that as, as part of the repayment for uh, his debt to the United States Dude. for the gift of freedom. Yeah, so, it's a, so that's what I really wanted to think about because I was like, why, yeah. what, is this, what, is this, what is this imposition of this debt look like? And it looks like, you know, participating in, in in uh, oftentimes it looks like participating in U.S. empire. Yeah, I keep track of all the real asshole refugees, Vietnamese refugees. <laughs> yeah, someone's got to be the community conscience, you know. Um, what are you working on now? Um, I am working on a book called *The Promise of Beauty* that um, kind of comes out of um, the first book. Uh, you know. I, you know, again, my research questions are always like, how are these things that are supposed to be social, like these social goods that we need in our lives? How, how do we, how do we understand what they're actually doing beyond what they claim to do? And so I'm, I'm, 
I encountered it so many times in my research thinking uh, on on thinking about refugees, where like an encounter with something beautiful in the camps, um, uh, like a you know like a flower or a person or a scene, um, then became a way of um, imagining uh, living on despite crisis, despite disaster. Mm -hmm. And I started to see this kind of structure um, for um, beauty, like uh, its promise um, repeated over and over again in situations of crisis and disaster where, where this, the encounter with the thing of beauty is what um, helps you to feel uh, a feeling of life being furthered, right? I mean, it's in um, the slogan, bread and roses, right? Like you, you like we need more than bread. We need more than the mere sustenance. Um, we need roses too, right? Um, we right. need beauty in our lives too, to, in order to feel uh, like we are thriving um, and, and flourishing. So, um, so, so the book is thinking about what that means. Like what does, you know, what does the promise of beauty do as an object, a feeling, a path, a habit uh, for living on and through crisis? Um, so that's what the that's what that book is about. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, I feel like there's such a robust tradition of like uh, like concentration camp and like pogrom literature. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, that's like. Where the or like even dating back, I mean, I guess maybe they were called pogroms too. But like Jews hiding from some sort of violent force or being kicked out of the next place because the whole thing is that we're always being asked to leave. And I think there's this notion that like there will be these transcendent moments that are like I think in Jewish texts are like provided by God or whatever that are signs to people. And I imagine these these kind of narratives exist across cultures um, that are like signs to people who are struggling that like it is worth continuing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting too, because um, you know, it's, it's also so portable, right? This promise of beauty is so portable across all kinds of political claims about what the future, what is necessary to secure in the present for a future to happen. Um, So, um, you know, I mean, you know, think about that last asshole in, who was president sent calling the wall that he wanted to build on the U.S.-Mexico border over and over again. He called it a beautiful wall, right? And so what is the imagination of, of beauty that he promised with this presence of a wall? Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an imagined future of... of um, <laughs> of, uh, of, cl- of closed borders of white supremacy, right? That's, that's the kind of uh, orientation of this, of, of his invocation of the beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. And then think about, you know, uh, Faviella, uh, Faviana Rodriguez's um, poster that became ubiquitous of the monarch butterfly. And it says migration is beautiful, right? And that's a different vision about what we need to secure for the life that we deserve, right? Um, right. Of open border, the opposite, right? But both of them are invoking beauty as, as a kind of promise to this future. So I just wanted to think about like, what is it, what is it doing? What is this promise doing? 
right. um, in the in all the different ways in which it's invoked. Yeah, I mean, it's so seductive. Like, I feel like even, um, like, I mean, so much of punk is about like, and like the sort of creations that come from punk are about like, you could talk about, there's a framework where you could discuss Slice Harvester as like about trying to find a transcendent beauty in the mundane or whatever that makes mm-hmm. it worth living in uh, an otherwise sort of just dreary and dreary world that's grinding us all to death. You know, there's like- Absolutely. there, And I think you can do that with a lot of stuff. And that's like- Yeah. Um, and it's really something that it never occurred to me to problematize or think through. Um, and it's, that's- I'm fascinated um, and I can't wait to find out <laughs> what you decide it means. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to. Um, so the last thing I wanted to talk about was the statement you wrote after the um, massacre in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you co-wrote that or you wrote that. I, I wrote it by myself. You wrote it by yourself. Okay. I just wanted to make sure to not credit improperly. I know that you academics care a lot about that shit. <laughs> um, it is notable to me, uh, non-academic, um, because it is one of the only um, statements released from, like, on behalf of an institution mm-hmm. that is unflinching in its um in its uh explicit connection between the like the material reality of these women's lives as sex workers and the facts of the massacre mm-hmm. in a way that i think people more prone to um uh respectability politics and like i you know i didn't hear much of this personally but like other um AAPI friends of mine were talking about like just debates they were getting into with people in their families or in their communities when they were trying to talk about like these women's status as sex workers as important that Mm -hmm. like that should be sort of swept under the rug or a secondary issue. And, um, and I think you talk about the, the intersections of those violence, like the racial violence, the misogynist violence, the sexualized violence, um, in that act, but also in the, and I think, and this maybe is like similar to the sort of gift of freedom work, but like the, um, I didn't see any other statements that were like straight up. were just like anti-trafficking laws are anti-immigrant. Mm-hmm. Like they're not actually looking to save people. Yeah. Or like what even is saving people? And yeah. I used to kick a guy in the balls for 50 bucks that I met at the goth club, but I would not say I've ever done sex work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think I've been sex work adjacent for a very long time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like people very dear to me. Yeah. Done sex work for a long time. And active sex workers are the only people I know that see, have ever seemed to care or state publicly that anti-trafficking laws are actually pretty pernicious. Mm-hmm. And so it's it feels really notable to me that in this position as like speaking on behalf of like a department in a university, which like maybe it's kind of a marginalized position or you can get away with a little more than like an, you know, an institution per se, but it's like, it just felt like fucking important to me how, Mm -hmm. how you said all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, fuck, I don't know. I just want to tell you it's cool. (laughs) And also (laughs) ask you to like, um, 
just talk a little more about the points that you made for the listeners who may not read the statement. Yeah, it was really important to me um, because, you know, I mean, I wrote the statement the day that we were all finding out, um, like it happened on a Tuesday evening and I started writing it Wednesday morning and, you know, what we knew wasn't a lot at the time, but it felt really important to me to um, respond to several things that I saw were already happening in the media, um, around the language of um, this person's sex addiction, um, the language of, um, oh, it wasn't, you know, we don't know that it was, uh, you know, racialized violence. Um, And at the same time, I wanted to respond to what felt to me like I understood where it was coming from, but it still felt to me something that I wanted to intervene in the kind of a, a gen- generalizing and flattening a little bit of what was happening and, and why it was, why it happened. Um, because it was, you know, there, there are elderly Asian people who are being targeted absolutely all over the United States right now and, and mm-hmm. everything like that. But, you know, this, this was, you know, there were very specific vulnerabilities of these Asian migrants who were targeted while working at massage parlors and spas. Um, and they are structurally built in um, to the, to this, to both uh, their migrant status, whatever it is, um, whether or not they were undocumented or not, whether or not they um uh, you know, had green cards or were naturalized citizens or whatever. There's something very specific about their vulnerabilities as working class migrants and as people who were subject to sexualized violence, whether or not they traded sex because they were working in these spaces. And I just wanted to be really clear about that um, in this in this statement um, because you know, even very early on, um, people were like, oh, you know, were they, were they trafficked? Um, and this is before mm-hmm. people knew anything about the victims, people, but already there was a lot of like, oh, you know, like, were they sex trafficked? And I just really wanted to be really clear about um, what I saw as a potential problem in the framing of um, these murders, because you know, one of the things I, I talk about all the time in I'm teaching a feminist and queer activisms class right now. And one of the lessons is always like how you frame a problem determines the solution. So if you frame the problem as trafficking, then uh, or and, and sex trafficking in particular, then mm-hmm. the solution is often imagined to be state solutions. Right. We're returned to the state to to. Um, um, quote unquote, solve the problem. And it was really important to me to observe that the state is the source of the, the violence that um, a, a migrant Asian worker, whether or not they do trade sex, is experiencing. The state is the primary source of violence, yes. <laughs> right? Um, 
Um, so that was really important to me to um, to make that really clear that um, like the police were not the police the police are never helpful. They're never gonna. They're never. They're never. They're never helpful. Um, they will rescue nobody in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, they will um, only criminalize um, uh, migrants, uh, sex workers, people who are presumed to be sex workers or trading sex, whether or not they're actually doing it. And we know that. We know yeah. that from um, so many. You know, historically that this is true. So it was really important to me to, to make that really clear in the statement. And because I was the only one writing it, I got to, I got to do exactly what I wanted. Hell yeah. (laughs) Um, I just know, like I showed it to a bunch of people and it was, it was really meaningful to, to read a statement like that to, but to some of these people that I showed it to, and it was really meaningful for me to read it. Like just as, a sick freak in the world who wants the world to be a better place than it is. Um, and is constantly looking for something hopeful or beautiful that I can hang a little bit of my dreams on. (laughs) 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 Um, what's that called? A callback. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I feel like a lot of what I do as, uh, an academic is very informed by, um, you know, what I learned, the lessons I learned from punk, which is if you want something to turn out the way that you want it to, you should sometimes just do it yourself. So um, it was, and so, you know, that attitude really (laughs) informed why, you know, I, I took control of the statement and, and wrote exactly what I wanted to say, which is, you know, um, fuck cops and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, fun sex workers. So. Yeah. The part that was like, it was like both state and, um, and non-state entities. And then in, in parentheses, it said like, for instance, ICE and civilian, um, anti-trafficking groups or something like, uh-huh. just like go in on those fucking anti-trafficking <laughs> groups. Yeah. You know? They're like, terrible. They're fucked up. They really are. And it's, and it's such an anathema, um, topic with squares. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because it's like, because they they won the messaging. If you want to go back to like your converse, like the conversations around like the antis and like the sort of how you frame a problem, like we can we can pull on a lot of threads that have existed in this conversation. But like they won the messaging. Sex trafficking mm-hmm. as right. a concept sounds atrocious, right? And so if you oppose anti-sex trafficking, you're a monster, right? But like. You know, what I'm here to ask is like, are you? Um, no, I'm sorry. I, I was trying to sound like one of those shitty dudes that we were making fun of before. Um, but no, I mean, but the fact is like every, literally every sex worker I've ever been close to or spoken to is like, that shit makes my life so much harder. Yes. And the, the experience of people that have been coerced into sex work is also not made better by these laws and by these No, and it's, it is not. And it's so it's sick. Not to see a smart person like you say it's so smart. <laughs> right. I mean, like anti-sex trafficking measures just, uh, uh, you know, they, they actually just criminalize the persons who are, 
who are supposedly trafficked, right? I mean, they, they make them so much more vulnerable to deportation and surveillance and arrests and all these other kinds right. of things. And, and, you know, if we also want to get real, like the, if, if, if people are having to move in order to live, that's, that's on, that's on, that's on states power that, yep. that produce these, these situations that produce these wars that produce, and that's on capital. Yeah. Um, and, and so if we want to talk about, you know, who, who, who are the, who are the main traffickers of human life? It's, it's, it's empire and capital <laughs> and, they've been right. doing it, and they've built this country on trafficking. I mean, like the, you know, the, the, this country is built on trafficked labor. Um, and, and then to pretend as if that weren't true and that the state is somehow, um, a, a neutral party or in, not even neutral. I mean, the, yeah. the perception is that the state is a benign actor that's yeah. like not benign, but benevolent. Yes. Actor. Yes. A, 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 a figure of rescue. Yeah. It's altruistic. Not. It's not. It's right. Not. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, yes. I think that was another thing in the statement that I was just like, fuck yes. Where it, you just, I, you said just explicitly, and this is something that I think I said maybe in the run up to the conversation that wasn't in, will not be on the podcast, but like part of why I wanted to talk to you is because I feel like you can, you can distill these pretty complex um, like sort of the intersections of all these different social power structures into really simple terms that are easy to digest. And you just straight up said anti-trafficking measures are anti-immigrant period. Yep. yep. No. I mean, you explained it further, but like just period, like there's not no, um, no disclaiming, no, like in this way or sometimes, or they mean well, just straight up. This shit is racist. And mm -hmm. like, um, and that fucking rules. I guess I just keep saying that rules. This is <laughs> one of the problems of um, interviewing someone who I think is really cool. Is that <laughs> I, I like have forgotten how to be a good interviewer. And I, I really, I'm glad you appreciated the statement, and I'm glad that other people have seemed to appreciate it too. It was yeah. really important to me to get it right and to really strongly come out against um, more policing against anti-trafficking measures again that might be proposed and just and just and or any anti-sex work stuff that might uh have emerge you know so it was really important to me to do those things hell yeah, yeah. um we should wrap up but do you want to um do you want to talk about your Ken Reeves coloring book real quick oh my god so I had a dream uh, several years ago where Keanu Reeves Yes, the movie actor was uh -huh. hanging out with the American Buddhist nun Pema Chodron, and they were just like chilling. And I woke up from that dream and I thought, you know what? They do seem like they would be friends in real life. <laughs> yeah. So I started to draw Pema Chodron into Keanu Reeves' films moments. Um, and the first one I did was Pema Chodron driving the bus. Um, in speed. So I replaced um, Sandra Bullock with Pema Chodron. And then 
it just became like a series of drawings that I was doing. And um, it brought me joy to yeah. do. <laughs> and, then, and then during the pandemic, I finally was like, oh, I'm going to finish this because I need a project to keep me occupied in the, in the pandemic where I can't go see my boo in upstate New York. Um, or, and, you know, I'm just sitting in my house teaching uh, remotely and talking to myself in front of my computer. So I, yeah. um, I, uh, I finished the sometimes Buddhist Keanu Reeves, sometimes Buddhist Keanu coloring book. Yeah, and I think it's important because <laughs> you are someone who I primarily think of as engaging in like pretty serious and important work, you know? Uh-huh. I just think it's a nice reminder that like like that shit rules. It's the drawings are great. It's really funny. Look, I'm really funny. And you I feel are. like I feel like that has been really downplayed um in, <laughs> in in stories that are told about me. So I appreciate that you um, brought up the Keanu Reeves coloring book because I think, yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm really fucking funny too. I, yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and you are, you've been so bogged down with having to um, be the living conscience of the immigrant refugee of the Vietnamese refugee community <laughs> and riot girl and um, men in punk that, no one has given you an opportunity to just really shine in that regard. I well, know, right? That's a fucking shame. So I had to give my, yeah, I had to give myself that opportunity by making this coloring book scene. situation we will be invincible hey that's it thank you to pat benatar for writing this song and thank you to the legend of billy dean the world's greatest movie for including it on the soundtrack and r.i.p walter bernstein um the husband of the founder of the literary agency that represents me who was a famous blacklisted movie director um, and Jewish communist who wrote the original screenplay uh, to Legend of Billy Jean, which I would fucking love to read if anyone is the plug for original screenplays of um, classic punk movies by um, famous Jewish communists. Um, yeah, so that's that. Thank you to Mimi for being an incredible guest and for being an incredible friend and to you, the listener, for listening all the way through. Um, and to me, a 38-year-old tranny who threatened to break a 52-year-old man's glasses. Uh, I stand by that. That dude sucks. And, um, 
yeah, the night naps got me feeling weird, so I'm gonna I'm gonna cut it off early. I usually talk till the song's over, but I think I'm just gonna fade this one out and sign off. Um, fuck ice, free Palestine, no cops, no creeps, peace in the pizzeria. I'm out.